Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Friday, November 29th, 2019. On today's episode of the show, we're going to present an interview with Knives Out writer-director Ryan Johnson. My name is Ben Pearson. I'm the senior writer at SlashFilm.com, and I'm joined on today's episode by Slash Film managing editor Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. Jacob, how's it going? It's going pretty good. By the time people are hearing this, we are actually on vacation. We are. So hello, hello, hello from the past. Yes. Happy Thanksgiving to all. Hopefully everybody had a great holiday and are continuing to enjoy your long weekend. Uh, But yeah, we thought it would be a good idea to present your audio from your uh, discussion with Ryan Johnson about Knives Out. This movie, it rules, doesn't it? Yeah, it's one of the flat out most entertaining movies of the year. Uh, it, It is so much fun. I can't wait to see it again. Awesome. I loved it as well. I think it's going to end up as in, in my top 10 of 2019. Um, what do people need to know about this uh, conversation that you had? Uh, I don't think there's much you need to know here. It was recorded about two months ago after the film closed Fantastic Fest 2019. Uh, but other than that, it's uh, spoiler-free. Uh, we talked about some uh, overall shape of the film details, but no story details, no spoilers. So you should be able to listen to it before or after you see the movie. Cool. All right. Well, here is your conversation with writer-director Ryan Johnson. I think a lot of people online, especially, are saying, oh, is this Ryan Johnson returning to the brick format, making it a mystery? <laughs> but I'm, when I'm watching it, I'm going, oh, this, like, Raymond Chandler and Agatha Christie couldn't be more different than how they yeah. structure their mysteries. Yeah. So how, how is Brick and Knives Out different in the same way that Chandler and Agatha Christie are different from each other? Well, that's, that's the key to it. I mean, there's so many different slices to the detective genre, and to me, the whodunit is a very specific cul-de-sac of the detective genre. It's very distinct from um, detective fiction of, of Hammett and Chandler and um, the stuff that kind of that film noir came out of. Yeah. So, uh, and you know, it's, it's kind of defined by, um, I'd say there's a moral certitude to the whodunit genre that doesn't exist in the Hammett stuff. I think, uh, Whereas it t- tends to be more of an anti-hero detective mm-hmm. in Chandler and Hammett, in uh, Whodunits, there's a pleasing moral certitude to the detective coming in, 
there's been a murder and you know by the end that the, the good guy is going to solve the murder and the bad person is going to yeah. Yeah, go to jail for it. And uh, yeah, I don't know. And then of course there's all, all sorts of tropes that you can use or not of like the big cast of suspects mm-hmm. and the locked door and the person who everybody wanted something from who ends up dead. Um, but I think that that element of it's it's a it's just more of a pleasing straight shot morally is is the big thing. Yeah, I feel like in this case, um, not not to uh, not to um, undervalue what Dylan Fritz is doing here, mm. but in, in the case of an Agatha Christie hero or a Knives Out hero, yeah. the detective is the broad personality who exists to. Uh, Make everyone make the reader feel smart and satisfied, as opposed to being the troubled guy who yeah, you, you relate with. Am I correct in that? Hundred yeah. percent. And that's why there was always a, there's with the best detectives of the whodunit genre. There's always a slight clownishness to them. Mm-hmm. I mean, on one hand, it's to throw off the suspects so that they don't take the detective seriously until mm-hmm. it's too late and they're going to jail. Um, but it also, I mean, there's there's a sense of fun to these guys. It's mm-hmm. it's rare that there's a whodunit where there's like a dark troubled detective. Um, it's usually more like Columbo or more like Poirot or mm-hmm. you know, Miss Marple, who's kind of the pleasant old lady serving mm-hmm. you tea and just yeah. asking questions because she's a curious, you know, you know, curious woman. Yeah, I feel like Columbo is probably the one I kept on thinking about even more so than Poirot because yeah. with Columbo, you know, people don't take him seriously until he has them. And here comes, uh, here comes the, a guy with this deep sort of accent who's just kind yeah. of hang on the background not seem like he's doing as little as possible but something he wrapped it all up it seemed you think that yeah and I my hope was that part way through the movie you would even be thinking like oh is <laughs> is he just going to end up being like not really like, like Gosford Park kind of does that yeah. a bit but follows through with it where Stephen Fry shows up as the detective but he's completely incidental to the case <laughs> and doesn't end up doing anything <laughs> useful in it I love that movie dearly yeah. It's, it's, yeah, yeah. I, I love how you uh how you film Dion Brink. For the first yeah. half of this movie, he's filmed often out of focus in the background, yeah. even during big key sequences. He yeah. is in doorways behind the action. Yeah. Um, the, the visual language here uh, lets him be an observer, and as a guy who explains straight up his technical method is to see where the truth lands and follow through, yeah. I feel like that's a very interesting way to, to like literalize and stylize a, a guy whose who's biggest strength is that he's a he's an observer yeah absolutely he's taking everything in and that's the danger of the detective i guess that's the thing they're always keen-eyed and only and you know that that was also i mean first of all knowing that i wanted to get around to the library scene at the end where the detective explains everything mm-hmm. i knew he was going to be doing plenty of he was going to be center stage for a big chunk of the movie <laughs> so letting him kind of lay back at first was yeah very intentional I think I was thinking about during this, and I hate to compare a movie I really loved to a oh, book yeah. I really don't like. Yeah. But um, Ian Fleming's *The Spy Who Loved Me*, which told, oh, yeah. which told a James Bond story from the point of view of somebody who was not James Bond, from the, from the woman who's in the hotel room. James Bond kind of comes in and out of her life just throughout the novel, and they just entirely for the movie. So but, I, I read *Casino*. I started reading a couple of Ian Fleming's books. I've read *Casino Royale*. I haven't read *The Spy Who Loved Me*. I haven't read it. It's it's a, if you're a completionist, it's worth it. But it, it's, yeah. it's more interesting than good for, sure. for this reason. Interesting. And that's. And um, I'm hoping to hear your name, uh, Anna de Armas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's the real lead here. The detective comes yeah. into her life, and, and we get to see everything he's doing essentially through her perspective. And she's our real character. She's the one who has yeah. to be the growth and the one who yeah. has some action happen to her. Fair I was going to ask, yeah. have you read Spy You Love Me? I, I, I guess now not. I have, now I have to, yeah. Now I guess I have to, yeah. Yeah, but yeah. I, will, I will point you to realize that, oh, I'm going to put her, yeah. this character, in the center as opposed well, to... Well, that was always, I mean, there was always kind of like a structural thing I knew I wanted to do with it. Yeah. Um, so that 
in order to kind of, I mean, big picture, just boring genre mechanics wise, it was to avoid a lull in the middle of the movie mm-hmm. when we're just, when we're with the detective and just gathering clues yeah. and just waiting for the solution. I wanted to give the movie an engine that was closer to kind of a Hitchcock thriller. And so that meant having a point of view that was somebody who there could be a threat that we would feel against, that we would sympathize with them. And that means basically having a point of view of somebody who's not the detective. Um, And this will, I don't want to, it's hard to talk about with getting in without giving too much away, but there there was something with the construction of it I wanted to do that required the detective being kind of, like you said, an outside observer for lots of it. Yeah, and speaking of the structure, one of the things I found really interesting here is that for a movie that's as deliberately old-fashioned and it's set up here, yeah. one thing it does is that when a character lies in the like, first half of the movie especially, we flash back into the earlier scene and we see them, the truth of their lie. We, yeah. see, we see the truth and we're aware of the truth before most of the characters are, yeah. which allows us to be in on the mystery and playing detective in a way that you know yeah. um, even the detective himself can't. Yeah. I won't put it you realize that we're going to start feeding these uh, breadcrumbs early. Well, that's again, I mean, you know, because I do, as much as I adore the whodunit genre, I do fundamentally agree with Hitchcock. That that's the, the danger of it is, it is it usually hinges on surprise and not suspense. And I do agree with him that suspense is a much stronger engine for a movie. And so the, what you said there is exactly the Hitchcock approach. Yeah. It's as opposed to... So, you know, uh, oh my god, this person was lying the whole time, being the punch at the end, mm-hmm. revealing it so that you're engaged with it. So you know, oh, why did that person lie in this way? Maybe they have this. So this, suddenly the gears are turning. That to me seemed, seemed just more fruitful for a lot of reasons. Yeah. There's a line in the movie where someone, uh, so the Christopher Humber's character, the, the writer, all his plots arrive fully formed, which yeah. is all, all the best bullshit artists say. <laughs> so when you're writing a mystery, do your plots arrive fully formed, Mr. Ryan Johnson? Not fully formed, <laughs> no. Not fully formed. I mean, there's some, I, I think that the thing that does kind of spring into existence for me, it's not the plot, because plot to me means all the intricacies of what happens when, and that takes a lot of work. That's still a lot of a lot of sweat equity put into that. But the basic, I think, what does spring into mind is the basic concept of it. You know, the essential. Oh, here's the big shape of what the mystery is and what the solution is and how it's going to play out. Uh, so on some very big meta level, there is that thing that's that is usually a eureka moment because it's usually one idea. You know, and. When they said the Q and A last night, I follow in the screening that yes. I've been thinking about because it really stuck with me was the idea that I guess because these characters and the types of characters you see in these classic Houdinists at the time were very modern reflections of the people you saw. Hundred percent, yeah. So and yeah. here you have like you know you have yeah. characters who are very archetypal of 2019, yeah. and in 20 years people say, oh, that this movie is set in 2019. <laughs> you can directly. So I want to know how how do you write those characters and how yeah. do you direct um, actors to say like. We, we want to play an archetype that's not fully formed yet. Is that something yeah. you think about? Yeah, absolutely. Well, that was something I was really conscious about coming into this, was wanting to emulate Christie in that specific way. And um, so, yeah, I, I wanted, I very purposefully was like, okay, you know what? Let's let's do the equivalent of the grumpy old colonel and the, you know, and the maid and the butler who maybe did it and, the, you know, this and that mm-hmm. from back then. Let's do the equivalent of that today. And that meant just kind of drawing a broad range of types of, yeah. of caricatures of different types from 2019. Um, and then uh, each of the actors, I mean, the trick was because we're, 
we weren't doing the other important thing to me was that it wasn't um i love the movie clue but that this wasn't clue this wasn't a parody this wasn't about parodying a type of movie this was a genuine shot at trying to do a good mystery so that meant the characters for however much they are types and however much they're kind of inflated style wise still had a foot on the ground and felt like real characters and that was the thing with the actors was with all of them it's like okay yes this is kind of a goot like tony collette okay yes this is a lifestyle guru who's kind of you know yeah we can pinpoint who this is but at the same time the character you're playing cares about this for this reason and is actually has this relationship to these people and that's that's what great actors can do is play up the fun of all that stuff and still still make you believe it's a real person on the screen. Yeah, one thing this movie has to share with Clue is that I feel there's nothing more satisfying, and I'm, I'm, you may agree with this, than the final 20 minutes where, where, the, where the detective monologues yeah. explains how it all happened. Yeah, yeah. And Clue has that madcap thing yeah, where he's literally yeah. running across yeah. the entire house to explain people falling with <laughs> there was a screwball thing. And I feel like um, Dan Craig here, uh, I'm not going to spoil anything, but yeah. I'll, I'll have to spoil it the detective movie as a detective explaining how it's done. Right. Um, but um, <laughs> what, what, what pleasures do you take in, in writing that kind of monologue and what had to be there when you, when you said, what well, speech would need to be here? I always wanted to, the whole thing was predicated on having that scene at the end. <laughs> like to me, I agree with you, that's my favorite part of every detective movie is the last 20 minutes. And sometimes, that's another fun thing. I went back and watch some of my favorites and timed like how much that, there's some of these movies where it's like half an hour of solid of them just explaining it at the end. And all what I love, I love all the flashbacks. I love the interaction of him describing it with the flashbacks of what actually happened after you've seen several versions of it. All of that stuff to me and kind of unweaving the whole meta puzzle of it all is, is is like candy, so I knew I wanted to get around to that at the end. Yeah. yeah. What, 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 what does the editing room look like when you see like that? Like, yeah. what conversations go into crafting? You know, um, how do we keep this monologue interesting for 15 minutes? How do we bring in these flashbacks? Yeah. Uh, put me in the editing room here because I, I can't imagine. I'm, I'm not far enough. Well, no, it's. I mean, the thing is, it's. It's. You know, what we shot and we, what we could cut together is very much on the page. Yeah. Like, if it's if it cuts away to a shot of some flashback, it's in the script saying cut away to the shot of flashback. So we, we shot, for the majority of it, we shot it and cut it together the way it was written. Um, otherwise, I think we would have lost our minds. But then you are constantly always looking for, and there's plenty of stuff where it's like, God, can we cut away? Like, you know, because a lot of the stuff we're talking about is stuff that we had filmed. And so there are plenty of instances where we're like, while he's saying this, should we cut to a little flash of this, you know? Anything we could find where we could illustrate what he's talking about by actually cutting to it, um, we, that was a big lesson of this, is how much that helped. Yeah. yeah. So, so I go from asking some kind of a question, it's, it's my job to overthink things. <laughs> um, Me too. And it's my job to overthink filmmakers and, and, and their choices. So. Um, I was looking over your filmography uh, leading up to this interview and revisiting some of the movies and yeah. thinking about them. I started asking myself, what is a Ryan Johnson film? What, what defines <laughs> a Ryan Johnson film? And I was looking at each of these things, and you can tell me in bull bullshit, but here's I don't want to. Yeah. Here's what I think a Ryan Johnson film is, and you can tell me yes or no. <laughs> it is a well-loved genre yeah. that is being interrogated in the most loving way possible. It is, yeah. in the case of Knives Out, Star Wars, uh, Brick, it is a type of thing that we've seen, we think we've seen a thousand times before, yeah. uh, but it's being dissected in front of us by somebody who, who loves it and wants to understand why it works. I, I'm writing that down. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, as, as when you're 
I don't know, anyone who makes stuff, you know, you're, if you start thinking of it in terms of what is the type of thing I make, you're dead in the water. You just have to kind of like follow your nose and make what's interesting to you the way you make it. But that's a, that's, that's a really beautifully put look. I would, I would aspire to have someone look at the movies I've made and describe them like that. So that's lovely. Yeah. I mean, I mean, yeah. just thinking about um, this, like I, some people say like I, I want to pay tribute to this movie yeah. or pay tribute to the genre, pay tribute to something that, me, that matters to me as an artist. Yeah. But then the, the result's often an imitation, which is well. I think that for me the key is, um, you know, to whatever extent I'm consciously thinking about this stuff. To me, to me, what the what it is is anything, and I'm like with a who done it with this. Yeah. You know, the key is to really investigate myself and get to the heart of what I love mm-hmm. about this stuff to get to the core of what is it that really makes me happy when I sit down and watch it who done it and then take that it's not even trying to like flip anything on its head or turn it around it's literally just taking that what hits my pleasure buttons and then saying okay so I'm not imitating the how of how they got there I'm doing my own thing that's going to get to that essential pleasure of it for me, yeah. and um, and that inevitably, you know, if you're if you're telling something with your own voice and you're not copying uh, a specific path but trying to get to a specific destination, you're going to forge your own path. You know, it's just inevitable. So. Yeah, I mean, I, I promise not to ask Star Wars questions, so uh, but uh, I feel, that, I feel, like, feel like this aligns. Um, in, in many ways, which is yeah. what I found pleasurable about Last Jedi, what I found pleasurable about Knives Out, what I found pleasurable about Looper, is that. Um, they're asking the right questions. They're, they're, they're not interested in um, in saying, here's something reheated, here's what you right. love. Right. There are movies that say, um, let's ask, why do you love this in the first place? Yeah, that, that to me is, because that's a question I'm always asking myself when I come into this, you know, is really trying to get at the heart of... Um, get at the heart, as opposed to... It would feel boring to me to just kind of like do karaoke with these things that that doesn't seem like that's worth anything to me really trying to a get at the heart of why i love it and also then you know in the telling of it explore something that right here right now is is feels like it matters and is on my heart you know yeah and it's maybe something you you want to dodge specifically but um yeah it's earlier this year when i saw jordan peele's us um on the staff this last week we talked about how this feels very much like one of the uh, one of the absolute first films that is a reaction to Trump, not necessarily in that it is an anti-Trump screed, but that right. it's a film that feels like it was produced in the mindset of him being president of the United States of America right now. Right. And I feel like this feels very present knives out. It's a, it's a blast. It's a fun movie. It's a good time first. Yeah. It feels like it's it's pre- that, that's present in the same way a film set in 1939 in Berlin would have another specter moving over it. Is that something you thought about at all? Yeah, very and, much so. Well, like I said, this was this was a hundred percent. The, to me, this this wasn't worth doing if it didn't feel like it was actually plugged into 2019 and plugged into the culture that we're all living in right now. So it was, um, and look, if you're living in 2019, you go home to your family and you, for Thanksgiving, you're sitting around the table, what, after a few glasses of wine, what does everyone end up arguing about? <laughs> it's inevitable, and it would have felt weird, frankly, to have a, a family in 2019 and not have this stuff be a part of it. And and frankly, you know, and, and to not have this uh, be something that the movie had on its mind. You know, if it's about today, it has to be about today. 
All right, so hopefully you guys enjoyed that. Uh, I will put a link to the written, like the transcribed version of the piece in the show notes if you want to read it for some reason uh, or send it to your friends or do whatever you want to do with it. There, you can find it there. Um, Jacob, any closing thoughts on Knives Out? People should definitely go see this movie, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, by, by the time you're listening to this, we'll have an indication in the box office, but I really hope this is the kind of movie that, you know, maybe older crowds seek out instead of Frozen 2 this holiday because... It's the kind of movie I wish we'll see more of, especially being released, you know, during these major seasonal moments. Really quickly before we go, there was some talk from Ryan Johnson about, uh, I think somebody asked him in an interview if he'd be interested in telling more stories with this Daniel Craig detective character. And he said yes. Um, I know it took, you know, 10 years for him to write this script. Do you think that, uh, you know, every few years he could come up with something that is as entertaining as this movie and you know get the gang back together or maybe like a different cast of characters more likely but with daniel craig at the center is that something you'd be interested in and do you think that uh johnson has the chops to pull something like that off uh i think johnson if he chose to make a benoit blank mystery every three to four years for the rest of his career i would be perfectly happy awesome yeah i I would i man i really hope that something like that happens i don't know if we're gonna get one every three or four years but i hope at least like one or two more that would be a a really really nice tight like cinematic universe all to its own but uh okay well we'll keep you posted on slashfilm.com about uh, more updates on that if that does indeed come to pass but in the meantime, you can find more about Knives Out at SlashFilm.com and linked inside the show notes of this episode. SlashFilm Daily is published every weekday, bringing you the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps, and send your feedback, questions, comments, and concerns to us at peter at SlashFilm.com. Please leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. And don't forget to rate and review the podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends about the show. Spread the word. Enjoy your weekend. Thank you for listening, and we will talk to you next time.